You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Uh, if we've not met before, um, let me welcome you. My name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's really great to have you with us, uh, and we're so glad that you uh, risked a thunderstorm and whatever else and, and made it out here today. Very hardcore. And if you decide to stay home and watch on a line, we love you as well. Uh, we don't respect you. As, no, we're kidding. We, we, no, we love you, and it was a little rainy, so we get that. Uh, but thanks for joining us in person or uh, online. Today, I just alluded a little bit in my prayer what we're doing. We're going to take this, uh, the next number of weeks before we, uh, we're finishing a ministry year, before we kick off into our new ministry year and talk about last things. What are the last things? How does the story sort of end up? And you know, people have always been curious about how the world ends. Um, there, it, it's always been an, a topic of uh, speculation and uh, something that people are interested in. And I don't, I don't know, uh, I don't have no study to back this up, but my impression is that there has been an uptick in the interest in the end of the world, uh, certainly during COVID. I think that sort of launched it as there were, you know, speculations about could there be a superbug or a super virus that would sort of end the world. And maybe I'm just more aware of it because I was studying this week to talk about the return of Christ. Uh, but in my newsfeed this week, I had a couple of different stories that came through uh, quoting credible people uh, about the end of the world. The first one was from The Guardian. Uh, here's the title of this article from The Guardian. This, that, man, I was a sucker. I clicked on this for sure. But this got some clicks, I'm sure. Five ways AI might destroy the world. And it starts with everyone on earth could fall over dead in the same second. So, I mean, that was all like, that was the sub-headline. So, like, okay, well, okay, you, you've got me. Um, I'm going to hear what you have to say. And they say artificial intelligence is already advancing at a worrying pace. What if we don't slam on the brakes? Ex experts explain what keeps them up at night. And I always love to hear what expert, if, I, I'm a sucker for that article. What cardiologists say you should never eat. Okay, I'm reading that article. So what, 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 if anybody's an expert and this really bothers them, or something that, you know, okay, I'm gonna check it out. So, um, and they were experts. The first guy teaches, uh, he's a researcher and teaches uh, art, about artificial intelligence at MIT. So it doesn't get any, MIT's the peak. That's, if you study at MIT in this kind of world, that's like Harvard Law. Top, top, it's, it's just the best. So this guy who teaches there, his, his contention is that smarter species typically do away with other species. And he gives all kinds of examples how um, destruction of rainforest uh, kills certain species. And he says, when the smarter species and the lower species, when their goals don't align, then the smarter species wins. So he talks about that. And his contention is that if AI becomes more intelligent than we, then what could happen is AI could begin to you know, sort of rule the world 
and would see us as unnecessary and could do away with us as been, has, has been the pattern uh, throughout history. So that's sort of his, uh, his informed theory. Second article I read was, uh, was about comments that were made by um, a congressman, a Republican congressman from Tennessee named Tim Burchett. And uh, Burchett is on the House Oversight Committee overseeing the, the UFO, or the coming UFO hearings, uh, as some things have been uh, initially leaked and then officially reported in the past year about UFOs. Now, this is the kind of stuff that was total just sci-fi in the past, but now is being treated uh, not as sci-fi, but just sci, okay? Just getting the science part of it. And uh, this, this congressman says that he's been shown classified footage that has not been released to the public yet. And he says that we've been dealing with government cover-ups um, of UFOs since 1947, he says, but probably since 1893, which was the Aurora, Texas UFO crash. And he's, he talks about some technology he's seen that they have. And he says uh, that, that potentially living sort of, I don't know what the proper word is, aliens, that's what I would say, but that, that the technology that they have that we found on Earth that's come here that, that we cannot match. And he says, if they are out there and if they have this kind of technology, they could turn us into a charcoal briquette, is what he said. I, maybe he was thinking about a summer barbecue, I don't know. So here, I mean, these are, these are stories I'm reading uh, this week that would, I assume, alarm people. Uh, that AI could destroy us, that's a pretty common idea, but that there are now uh, more belief that there are some kind of alien life, there's other life in the universe, and that it potentially, uh, supposedly by congressmen who've seen what you and I have not seen, um, that they have technology we don't have. So uh, I'm reading this kind of stuff and I go, well, the MIT guy knows more than me, the, the, the congressman's seen things I haven't seen, so they know more than I. But I have the Bible, and the Bible tells us how the world will end. And it's not focused on AI, and it's not focused on aliens. It's focused on Jesus. That's how the world will end. It will end when Jesus wants it to end and how Jesus wants it to end. And we get a picture of how that will happen uh, at numbers of places in the Bible. And what we're going to be doing is looking at those, those things over the next weeks uh, called last things. Um, last things, the, the theological category for that is eschatology. Eschatology means uh, literally the study of last things. And so we're going to uh, look not at speculative pop eschatology, uh, though I'm going to refer to a little bit of it today, but we're not going to talk about sort of sensationalistic, fictionalized eschatology, which has been the rage at least since the 70s uh, in the Jesus movement in the U.S. Uh, but we're going to look at what is more orthodox, historical, bedrock. Churches always believe these things about the last thing. So today we're going to talk about the second coming of Jesus. Uh, the second message we're going to look at is on our resurrection from the dead. Uh, the third message we'll look at is on the judgment and the fourth message will be on the new heaven and new earth. So those are, these are topics that are uh, beyond controversy. They're just sort of bedrock, orthodox um, teachings in the Bible that don't come with charts and speculation and some of that kind of uh, stuff. So today we're going to look at the return of Christ from 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18. 
Uh, This is God's word to us about how it all ends up. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive and left, I'm sorry, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who've fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, this, this passage on the return of Christ um, is not just given in a systematic theology or in a book about last things. Uh, this is given in a letter to a people And so it has a context, and it has a very specific purpose of why Paul is talking about this subject. The church at Thessalonica, these are new believers. Paul planted this church. Uh, They are new Christians, and so they are learning the very basics of the faith, many of them Gentiles, so they wouldn't even have the background of the old covenant that a Jew might have coming to Christ. And uh, so they are learning many basic things, and it's easy to piece together what their concern is and what they're asking Paul about. Um, what they've probably already asked Paul about, and it's in verse 13, the first verse. We do not want you to be uninformed, he says, about those who are asleep, uh, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So here's the question. Uh, Here's here's the question they have that he's going to answer. These are brand new Christians. They've been told Jesus died, Jesus was buried, Jesus rose, Jesus ascended, Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit, and that Jesus will return. So they've been told that Christ will return. Uh, They don't understand the timing of that, but they know he's going to come. And so what has evidently happened is some of their fellow church members, new believers, have died. And so the concern at this point would be, are they going to miss out? If they've died, do they miss out on the return of Jesus? And, And Paul says, look, we don't want you to be uninformed about that, and so he's going to explain the second coming of Jesus because they are grieving. He doesn't want them, as he says in verse 13, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Uh, they think their loved ones have missed it, and so they, are, uh, they have a, a hopeless grief for those who've died. So this is the context. The context of this doctrine in this passage is to comfort grieving people who have lost Uh, loved ones who were believers. And what he does is Paul is going to show us the return of Christ gives us a new hope and a new encouragement. The the certain prospect that Christ will will return gives us new hope and a new encouragement. Those are the two ideas here. We're going to look first of all at the new hope. So he starts by addressing their grief, as as I just mentioned. He doesn't want them to grieve as others do, Uh, He doesn't want them to grieve those who, he says in verse 13, those who are asleep. Those who are asleep. This is referring to those who are dead. 
Now, why does he say that they are asleep? He's not teaching soul sleep here. He's, he's not teaching that when you die, you have no consciousness until the resurrection. Uh, he's not saying that. He's using the picture of sleep because there will come an awakening to their bodies. Their spirits are uh, still living, um, but their bodies are decaying. And so what he's saying is that there will be a future awakening of your body, and that will be like awakening from sleep. And uh, he certainly wants them to be grateful. We're certainly grateful that people who die are with the Lord. Paul says elsewhere, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we are present at at death. Believers are present with Christ, um, but we still grieve even knowing that, and they may not have known that. But we, we, we grieve that people are gone. When they die, uh, a, someone dies in the Lord, we still grieve. And it's because death is an intrusion into God's good um, creation. Death reminds us that things are not the way they are supposed to be. God created life, created us, created us uh, to live eternally, <clears throat> but Because of Adam and Eve's rebellion, because of their sin, death came into the world, and now it's part of the human story. And it's the great enemy that we all face, that our world faces, uh, death. And so uh, he's here giving them hope in the midst of uh, death and letting them know that death does not have the final word. Death does not have the final word for those who die before Christ returns as believers, Uh, or for those who are living when he returns. We have a new hope because, verse 14, he says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who've fallen asleep. So we have a new hope because Jesus died and Jesus rose. This is the simplest, maybe the simplest statement of the gospel in all the New Testament. Jesus died and rose again. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Uh, and we get it here in those, uh, you know, those five English words, Jesus died and rose again. So because of that, death has been defeated. Uh, death was defeated at Christ's resurrection, and we will experience that ultimate victory when Christ returns. Our hope focuses on the personal, physical return of Jesus when we will join him personally. And so the doctrine of the second coming, in a primary way, reminds us that death does not separate us from Christ. Death does not separate us. We do not die, and then it is over. We die, and uh, we are present with the Lord, and then we long for the day when our bodies will be resurrected at his coming. He further stirs sort of hope for grieving people in verse 15, where he says, um, that uh, Yeah, in verse 15, that we who are alive will not precede those who have already uh, died. For we declare to you by word from the Lord, we who are alive, who are left until his coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And in verse 16, he says that, at the second part of verse 16, he says, the dead in Christ will rise first. So he's, he's telling them uh, that the dead are not left behind. In fact, they will edge us out a little bit. They will be resurrected. The living will still be here. though. They will be resurrected, and then presumably immediately after that, we are uh, taken 
to be with him as well. So he wants them to know you don't have anything to worry about. They are okay, and they will actually, if we're still living when Christ returns, they will edge us out uh, with resurrection body to see Christ and to be taken to him. Verse 16, he tells us just what we have to look forward to, this glorious event. Look at this language. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven, and look what will happen when Christ appears. He will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. So the picture of Christ's return is, well, it's indescribable. It's, it's, he uses pictures from the Old Testament. Each of the things he mentions all happen at some point in the Old Testament. He descends. That's as God descended at Mount Sinai uh, and revealed himself. So Jesus will descend. There will be the, the trumpet will sound. There will be a, a trumpet sound of victory as Christ returns. There will be the, the voice of an archangel, a voice that none of us have ever heard, that we can't even imagine, couldn't be described humanly, a sound probably unlike anything that we've ever experienced. So there is all this fanfare, this glorious fanfare at the arrival of Jesus. And the whole event in verse 15 is described as his coming. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive were left uh, until the coming of the Lord. And I'm going to tell you what this verse coming is because you can read this uh, and often the Greek is just transliterated and the word coming is not even used. So oftentimes when people, particularly more scholarly people, uh, write about the return of the Lord uh, or those who want to you know, give a, a 50 cent Greek word to impress others or something. We'll use the word parousia. So that is the word. If you've read that somewhere, if you read eschatology, you'll come across the word parousia. Parousia literally is translated here, coming. It's, it's also translated appearing some places, or it's, it has to do with his presence. It's translated his presence at, uh, at some places as well. So Jesus appears with this cosmic fanfare, the dead believers are resurrected to join him, and then the living are caught up together, is what verse 17 says. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air so that we will always be with the Lord. Uh, sometimes, especially in modern popular eschatology, this, this word here, caught up, uh, is called uh, the rapture. <clears throat> Excuse me. The rapture, the word does not appear in the Bible, um, and it, it is, it's not even a Greek word. It's a Latin word. It, uh, rapture comes from a Latin word that translates uh, the Greek uh, from caught up. So you take the Greek word for caught up, you translate it into Latin, you get a word that when it's transliterated into English is rapture. That's where that comes from. The word means, this caught up word means to be seized or to be snatched is what it means. Now some have taught, and maybe you believe this, this is what you've taught, and maybe I'm about to say something you've never heard before, uh, but some have taught that this is a secret whisking away of believers. Uh, that is what I was raised on. That was the primary, uh, the teaching of the rapture uh, appeared 
I don't have the statistics when I grew up, but I got to believe in one-third of every sermon that word appeared, maybe one-tenth of every, I don't know. But it appeared all the time in sermons because it was the event and it was the hope, uh, you know, and so that was always talked about. But this, this verse, if you read it, it doesn't appear that this is a secret whisking away at all. As a matter of fact, Paul couldn't be any more definitive that this is not a secret, that the trumpet is sounding, that archangels are speaking, that Jesus is present. There is nothing about this that is hidden, and it's almost an offensive idea, I think, to say that this is some kind of a secret, private whisking away of believers. This is the climax of history. And when Christ returns, there's a number of things that happen right together at this time. People are resurrected. We'll be talking about the resurrection. Our resurrection is tied to this coming, to this return. There's other things that are tied to it as well we're going to see. Judgment is tied to it. And the creation, the, the sort of creation of a new heaven and a new earth. It is the, the climax of history comes in a single, not a double, return of the Lord, separated by uh, seven years, three and a half years, some number. It is not that. It is a a single return of the Lord. And maybe you've never heard that before, and maybe you think what I just said was unorthodox. If the first time I heard it, I thought it was unorthodox, that the person who told me that, who was teaching that, might not even be a Christian, because that idea of the secret rapture of the church was was to me a doctrinal belief that was taught as deeply as the, the inerrancy of Scripture or the substitutionary atonement of Christ. It was at that level. We don't hold anything about eschatology at that level. There's differing points of view. Uh, If somebody believes there's two returns, they may be far more godly than I, and they may be orthodox in all of their doctrine about the gospel. So it's not a gospel issue, but I just want to say that it is a, a, a speculative issue that is very recent in the history of the church and is uh, is popular and carries tremendous entertainment value. So in preparing for the sermon, to make sure I wasn't saying something wrong, for the first time in my life yesterday, I watched Left Behind. I've never watched it uh, because I'm OG in eschatological cinema. I grew up on A Thief in the Night, which is from the 1970s, and you, many, most of you don't, probably don't even know what that is. But when I was in fifth grade in VBS, they hauled all of us into a dark auditorium and showed us a thief in the night. Like, what's going to, it was hardly anything about the rapture, but it was all like, what's going to happen during the seven years of tribulation uh, after all the Christians disappear? So it was that, I saw that in fifth grade, and I'm, I, that was borderline abusive to show that to children. <laughs> I mean, we had third graders in the fetal position at the end of that thing. Not really. But that, that was the stuff of nightmares for a kid that said nothing about the grandeur of Jesus. It was just a fear-mongering thing. And I guarantee you, after seeing Thief in the Night for elementary schools, you can get any little kid to pray anything you want them to pray, <laughs> asking Jesus into their heart or in, into their liver or wherever you can ask Jesus. <clears throat> so it was the way they did evangelism, and the Lord honored it. I'm making fun of it a little bit, but uh, the Lord honored it. People got saved, and God was very gracious. So I, I'm, I was that level. I was, Larry Norman, you've been left behind, even the DC Talk version. So I, I was that level, and again, I feel like it's probably not registering very many people, but left behind does register. So that was the boomer version of eschatological entertainment. 
the Gen X millennial version was, and so when I went to watch Left Behind yesterday, I didn't know there was two versions. And so I didn't know, do you go Kirk Cameron or do you go Nicolas Cage? I didn't know. And so uh, Kirk Cameron had 16% uh, thumbs up on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, Nick Cage had zero. It was zero. And that's not Christian persecution. It's not persecuting unbelievers. That's bad art. And that's why it's being judged that way. So I watched it. And here was my analysis of the Kirk Cameron version probably put, put together and written by very sincere, godly people. The guy who wrote the books, sincere and godly, no doubt. Um, I was shocked at how unbiblical it was. I was shocked at it didn't even give a pretense. I, I don't think Jesus is mentioned in the entire movie. God is. I don't think Jesus is. The cross is never mentioned. The resurrection is never mentioned. And if you don't have the gospel, there's nothing Christian about a production. The entire thing uh, is about... Uh, planes going down and cars careening and piles of empty clothes of people who have disappeared with a few verses, including the one we're reading today. But to read this and end up with that kind of speculative, sort of fearful thing, the reason I'm talking about this is it misses the entire heart of what the believers should think about when they read 1 Thessalonians 4, that this is the glorious moment of triumph where our God returns to say, all of this is mine. I rule and I reign and everybody's going to know about it. Everybody's going to be aware and everybody's going to be in awe of the Lord Jesus Christ. The return of the Lord, is this is our hope. It's not something to, to be caught up in speculative fiction about it is, this is our great hope that Jesus will return. And there may be all kinds of bad things that happen in the end with regard to great suffering and uh, a man of lawlessness and antichrist and all of that stuff. But the great hope of the return of Jesus is that, that he comes to usher in a new creation. And it's not something that, to, it, what we're told about it is so glorious that we don't need to create fiction or speculate about what could happen and the United Nations and on and on and on. It, we need to focus on Jesus is, my, is our point. Christ's return isn't an escape hatch for Christians to get out of the world. The whole Bible is about Christian suffering. Do you think in Israel people thought there's going to be some escape hatch to get us out of this? Absolutely not. They suffered tremendously. The Christians in the early church suffered tremendously. People all over, Christians all over the world today are suffering tremendously. And the great hope isn't to be secretly snatched out of that. The great hope is that Christ will return and make all things new. That is the glory. That is the hope. It's not to flee the prison of the world to arrive safely in a midair heaven. It is to be physically resurrected, to be re-embodied with God in a fully redeemed, fully transformed world. And the first domino of the fully transformed world is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The second domino is his return, bringing our resurrection to life with him. So what will his descent be like? What will it be like? It says he descends in the clouds. What is that going to be like? Well, when we get to these kinds of realities, I think it's really safe to assume that while the Bible is flawless, perfect, and completely accurate, it's human language. 
And we probably don't have accurate human language to express how glorious God really is in his return. That's why he's speaking of an inexpressible glory. Um, and so this is, this is powerful and beautiful, but I've got to believe that that moment will be greater than our fallen minds can imagine today. Um, in the Bible, people can't even see God face to face and live. So glorious is he. And so moments like this um, are beyond our description. You know, that's why I think apocalyptic literature like Revelation is written in images and symbols. It's written in images and symbols because like narrative history, it'd be hard to explain uh, how amazing this really will be. We, ha we have a certain limited way of knowing and experiencing things in this life. And his return brings a new reality. A new dimension will break into the old. And when Christ returns, we will have a, we'll see him just as it says here, but we will have a new way of perceiving that we've never imagined before. Uh, that when, we, when we see him face to face, when we are resurrected, we will have a new way of experiencing life that is beyond anything, I believe, we can imagine in its glory and its majesty and in its wonder. And that is so much more worthy of our attention than cars careening off a road. In a There's so much more worthy of our attention and glory. The holiness of Christ revealed uh, in his returning that will be beyond our present understanding of how wonderful that could be. Greg Beale is a theology professor, teaches here in Dallas at Reformed Theological Seminary. He writes this, what has been traditionally understood as the second coming of Christ is best conceived as a revelation of his formerly hidden heavenly presence. The old world reality will be ripped away and the dimension of the new eternal reality will appear along with Christ's presence. When Christ appears, he'll not descend from the sky over Boston or London or New York City or Hong Kong or any other localized area. When he appears, the present dimension will be ripped away and Christ will be manifest for all eyes to see throughout all the earth. His point is, this is a universal return. I mean, if Jesus appeared physically, you know, 200 feet in the air above Frisco, it wouldn't be seen all over the world. But he's going to be ripping apart this world and our dimension and our reality and revealing himself as the glorious Lord of all for everyone, everywhere to see. What happens next? Well, we are reunited with him in the air. That is very obvious. So what happens after we're reunited with him in the air? The text doesn't say. The text doesn't say. But it does give a clue. If you were a Thessalonian and you were hearing this read to you in Greek, there is a clue because he uses a word um, that, that, that after he speaks of being caught up together with the Lord, will always be together with him. He gives us a clue of what happens next in verse 17. In verse 17, it says, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet. That's the word. Meet the Lord. Meet the Lord. This was actually, in Greek, a technical term that was used about people in a city going out and meeting 
a dignitary. So for instance, the word is used in Acts 28, 15, when Paul is approaching Rome and it says, the believers in the city come out of the city to meet, that's the word, Paul, and then accompanying him back into the city. So the historian Josephus describes the citizens of Antioch going out to meet the Roman general Titus, a dignitary, and to escort him back into the city. So the text just doesn't answer the question, but the word here would give some indication that certainly, probably rather than hanging in midair, what would be expected is a meeting of the Lord and then the Lord leading his people uh, to the new earth created at that moment or sometime, created uh, leading them back to the new earth. But ultimately, it's impossible to answer the question from the text. I just want to tell you about that word because it opens up certainly a, an idea that I think is, uh, is a powerful one that ties the return of Christ to the new heaven and the new earth, which scripture throughout ties it to that. And all of this is supposed to lead to encouragement. Verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. A new encouragement from these words. When we remind each other that Jesus died and rose so that we have new life, verse 14, that is encouraging. And we need to hear that regularly. And when we hear that he will return with those who've already gone on and believed in Christ, that is encouraging. And we're told that believers will be, will see him and join him. That is encouraging. It is actually, to, the word encourage means to impart courage. It's to impart courage to us because we find courage to press on when we read about the glorious, magnificent return of our victorious Savior, Jesus Christ. We receive courage and strength that, that our, our deep hope and longing is not just to escape a dark world or to escape persecution that's worse than what has been experienced by Christians to date. Our great hope is, is tied to Christ's return and to seeing him and being with him. It is a substantial, lasting, hope-infused encouragement that, in, that it comforts grieving people but gives us courage to press on in every circumstance and situation, knowing that he's coming to make all things new. So be encouraged. There's, that's a rich app, there's a lot of rich application of this text. One is the purpose of the text, pastorally in its original writing. This is comforting for the grieving. Some of us in the room, oops, some of us in the room perhaps have lost someone in the Lord in recent days, months, even years. And this is meant to be an encouragement to you. This is meant for you to know, to be absent with the Lord, to be absent of the bodies present with the Lord, that they are with the Lord. We don't know a lot about what that means, they're not, but we know they're not suffering or experiencing sin or difficulty or anything like that. That's one thing. And th they, will, they will return. When Christ return, your loved one will return with him. That is a powerful truth from this text that you will be rejoined. I don't think our loved ones will be the primary thing on our mind in that moment. I think Jesus will. However, we will be with all the people of God, and that matters. And you will be with your loved ones. You, you can take courage in that. That's why he's telling them this. I don't want you to grieve without hope, he says. 
I want you to grieve, yes, but to have great hope. It's a confidence, secondly, for the believer. This is, if you're a Christian, this is not a scary doctrine for you, the return of Christ. This should not be a scary doctrine. It's the most encouraging truth imaginable. If you're a believer, and man, maybe I'm just working out some of my childhood here, I don't know. I can remember like coming home as a believer and nobody's home. You didn't have cell phones and stuff. So I thought my mom was going to be home, but she's not home. She's very godly, but she's not there. And I'm thinking, oh man, I missed it, you know. And so then I'm wondering, am I really saved? And you laugh, but that's scary, man, when you're 10 years old and that's what you're, that's your life as the rapture, man. That's what the Christian faith's all about for you. I missed it. Like in the movie, there's a oh, wife gets up and there's an electric razor in the, in the bathroom going, her husband's gone. So as a Christian, I feared. That was just my fault, I get it, but I feared. You should not be fearful about the return of Jesus Christ. It is to fuel a confidence to, in you that he rules over all and he's going to descend and manifest his rule so that everyone sees and he's coming to right all wrongs. His return means salvation for you as a believer and not wrath for you as a believer. Uh, look, if you, I don't have this on the screen, but if you go a little bit farther in your Bible, the next chapter, he continues to talk about the day of the Lord. By the way, that's another reason I think there's only one return of the Lord. The hope of the Old Testament is the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. That's the day he comes uh, in judgment and to, you know, uh, closes everything up. And this snatching away this snatching away that we read about in chapter 4 is referred to in chapter 5 as chapter 5, verse 2, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. It's using the Old Testament language of one return. There's this age, there's the return of Christ, there's the age to come. The, the, the world is divided into two ages, this age and the age to come. And what marks it is the return of Christ, the day of the Lord. So that's another reason that I think there's one. But at any rate, in chapter 5, if you go to verse 9, he says this, For God has not destined us, Christians, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. This is what it should do. We should be encouraged. He's not coming back to pour out wrath on the believer in Jesus or anything like that. He's coming to bring full salvation to us. And that is such good news. Our posture is to be that we are eagerly waiting, that we are anticipating, that we are awaiting his return. There, there's an urgency to it. I, I think that's a value of some of the stuff I grew up with, that there's an urgency to evangelism. Yes, Yes, the return of the Lord, we're thinking about that. There's an urgency to evangelism, even to the young. They may not die for a long time, but the Lord is returning. So there is this sense of let's be faithful to share the good news. But it is an encouragement for the believer. And it is judgment for the unbeliever. Judgment. Look at 2 Thessalonians 1. We have this for you, verses 7 to 9. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. 
the same day will be glorious, beautiful, indescribable joy for the believer. And it will be utter terror for the unbeliever. To stand before Jesus as one who has rejected him, as one who, as this verse says, does not obey the gospel of our Lord. That is, does not believe in Jesus as the Savior and submit to him as the Lord, but rejects the love of God who sent Jesus to die for us. They will suffer, he says, eternal destruction. So this passage is a call to repent if you do not know Jesus. It is a call to turn knowing that the greatest danger and threat to you is not AI. And I don't mean to mock that either. I mean, AI may be a very serious thing, okay? May have, may have very negative repercussions. But it is not the greatest threat to you. If you're an unbeliever, the greatest threat to you is not aliens, whether they exist or not. That is not the greatest threat to you. The greatest threat to you is the holiness of God. And you will stand before him and give an account for your life. And if you have not believed in Jesus, you will give account and you will pay for your own sin by condemnation, eternal judgment, hell apart from Jesus Christ. So there's grace to you today. There's a call to turn and say, Jesus is returning. It's going to be magnificent. It's going to be wonderful to believer. But the Bible says, 2 Thessalonians, it's going to be judgment and terror for the unbeliever. You don't have to be an unbeliever. You can turn to Jesus today, acknowledging your sin and coming before him and uh, trusting that he died on the cross for your sins and that by believing in him, your sins can be forgi are forgiven and receive new life in him. The last point, which maybe we'll talk about later in the series, but it's just this, that really another application of the doctrine is holy living for the believer. Do you know that belief in the return of the Lord, whether you hold the return of the Lord or the secret rapture of the church and a later return, whatever you believe on that, the return of the Lord and his coming is to promote not hey, it doesn't matter what I'm doing. It doesn't, nothing matters. Jesus has forgiven me and he'll come back. And no, no, it is, that's all true, but he has forgiven you. But it is, I want to please him. I want to live for his glory. As a believer, I want to honor him and I want other people to know this Jesus and experience this new life as well. It's holy living. It's wanting to be like Jesus. It's not abusing grace and saying, it's okay, I'm in. No, that is not grace. That's not an understanding of grace. It is wanting to please the Lord with our lives and honor his word and live for him. So it is, it is a call to live, as the next chapter, chapter five says, live alert, live awake. You're people of the light, he says. People of darkness get drunk and live lives of, in the dark. But you're people of the light, so live for Jesus in the light faithfully. I'm going to read you what I think is a really helpful, clear summary of the doctrine of the second coming of Christ. It's very basic. It's written by a British theologian named N.T. Wright. This is what he says. There will come a day when God will put all wrongs to right, when all grief, for the believer, I would say, will turn to joy. Jesus will be central to that day, which will end with the unveiling of God's new world. There, those who've already died and those who are still alive will both alike 
be given renewed bodies to serve God joyfully in his new creation. That is a beautiful, succinct statement. This is what the return of the Lord is about, about God coming to make all things new, about God coming to be present with his people, to grant them a glorified resurrection body, which we'll talk about, so that we can be in his presence forever in a renewed earth, new, renewed creation, serving him and bringing glory, glory to him forever. So encourage one another with these words. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.